Currency Press is Australia's foremost publisher of the performing arts. We've been sharing Australian stories since 1971, and we've always believed in theatre that raises more questions than answers. That's why we're sitting down with some of the country's most respected playwrights and talking to them about their work. Each month we look at one play, over 30 minutes, with insights straight from the source. Hello, I'm Toby Leon, and this is Not In Print. Donna Abella served her playwriting apprenticeship at Powerhouse Youth Theatre, a company she co-founded in 1987 in Sydney's culturally diverse western suburbs. Donna worked continuously with PYT for the next 17 years as it consolidated its practice of community collaboration. She has worked extensively as a dramaturg and script assessor for various theatre companies and organisations, including the Australian Writers Guild and the Australian National Playwrights Centre. Over her career, Donna has written more than 30 stage and radio plays for audiences of all ages. Credits include A Cleansing Force, Olympia and Fuong, Spirit, The Greatest Show on Earth, The Rude Screen, The Daphne Massacre, Mrs. Macquarie's Cello, and the play we're here to talk about today, Jump for Jordan, which won the 2013 Griffin Award and is just about to embark on its premiere production. Aspiring archaeologist Sophie left home when she was 20, much to the shame of her traditional Jordanian mother. Six years later, losing sleep and petrified by the judgement of her visiting mad Arab, Auntie Azza, Sophie is forced to lie about her life, her career, and the existence of her Aussie partner. Worst of all is the fear that she's also lying to herself. Looking deep into the heart of Sydney and beyond, Jump for Jordan unpacks the experience common to countless second-generation Australians of being caught between two cultures. Donna, welcome to Not In Print. Thank you very much. At what point did it hit you that this story needed to be on stage? It has always been a piece of theatre for me. I mean, I only ever think in theatrical or radio terms anyway. Only ever? Only ever. ever. Yeah, only ever. Um, And that's because I love the fact that the audience completes the experience with their imagination. When I started to imagine this play, it was very much a play that I knew I would build in layers. And the layers in the play are reality, imagination, conversations with the dead, anxious projection. And and I always thought that theatre was the best way to convey those layers clearly and dynamically and have a clash of all of those layers. When did you decide to submit Jump for Jordan to the Griffin Theatre Company for consideration in the 2013 Griffin Awards? I submitted it in December 2012. Um, knowing that it wasn't completely finished, because it is a play that, that can only be finished on the floor. So I, I took a punt that the, the, the narrative was developed enough um, to pop it in an envelope and send it, send it in to Griffin. How long was the wait between when you submitted and the announcement? About six months. Wow, okay. Yeah. Had you almost kind of forgotten about it by the time it happened? Had you moved on to other things? Or oh, yeah, you... you just, you move on. You, you, you know, you, you don't wait around for these kind <laughs> of things, you know, you just have to keep moving on. So let's talk about Sophie. What are the most important things that we should know about Sophie? Sophie in the play, she's about 25. She's uh, an archaeological student, archaeology student, um, who's taken a very long time to finish her first degree. She's impulsive and reactive and very impressionable. Um, So 
part part of the journey of the play is her sifting and sorting out impressions gleaned from other people and working out what her view on things actually is. So she's a bit of a sponge at the beginning where she she takes on things without questioning them and acts on them. And she clearly gets overwhelmed and mm. actually moved out at 20 or ran away, I should say. And she didn't tell her mother, Mara. She didn't tell her sister, Lauren, where she was going. She just left. Mm. Left them wondering for months. And when she resurfaced, her mother turned her back on her and refused to speak to her. In Sophie's own words, for the last three years, you acted like I didn't exist. Mm. I want to hear about the complexities surrounding this incident. Why did Sophie run away? Mm. Well, Sophie, Sophie runs away as... Um, I've, I've changed it to 21 now because uh-huh. you know the script is in development, has been in development right up till this interview. <laughs> um, uh, she's Yeah, she's 21 in the play now when she runs away and she runs away because of the level of conflict and hostility in her family situation, particularly between her and her mother. Staying at home with the level of conflict that was going on between her and her mother was just unbearable. But the importance of that incident to the play is the shame and guilt that that the the character of Sophie then carries through most of the play because you know that's the beginning of a new new load of troubles Mm. the fact that she shamed her mother and as a consequence in the play the mother cuts ties with her community with friends the sister Lauren becomes the mother's pretty much only social contact and Sophie carries a lot of guilt about that which during the play she's trying to atone for. Now, she's a budding archaeologist studying all the theory and techniques of inquiry that come with such painstaking work. So I wonder why Sophie has not felt the same passion about her own family history. For me, it's about, well, how did she, what was her experience of her family history and what was her experience of her parent culture? And because it was filtered through... um, the mother Mara and Mara is a very embittered character she she can never have the life in Australia that she had overseas and so Sophie's experience of, of her culture is is um, she's been locked out of it so any connection she has to her culture at first is is tainted by the relationship she has with with her mother so so she has a, a general passion for archaeology and traveling in the Middle East and finding artifacts and things like that but she's not immediately interested in her family history because it's been kept away kept from her she's been locked out of it she's been locked out of the language so she doesn't really have an entry point there are also some moments that I found with her and Sam her lover her partner um, where Sam who is also a budding archaeologist has to actually instruct her on the methods of inquiry because Sophie can't quite drill down in the kind of methodical way Mm. that's required for this sort of work she doesn't actually operate that way naturally anyway so I wonder if there's a confluence between the kind of influence that she's had from her mother um, not really kind of giving her access or allowing her access but also not necessarily being the sort of person that naturally digs and quite ironic considering that she's studying archaeology and I wondered what you thought about that. The, the two daughters have been held back, if you like, because um, their their social life has been curtailed. They've been kept close to the family nest, and Sophie creates a lot of problems by pulling against that. And when she does find freedom and, and move out of home, she's not ready for it. She's not skilled for it because freedom has to be defined. Freedom has to have foundation. Freedom has to have a belief system that can you know support the the new adventure that you're on. So she's. She's not fully prepared for for life, for maturity, for freedom, or for being an archaeologist, which in order to be a good one, it's actually quite a methodical, painstaking, systematic 
thing that you need to take on and it needs to have long-term commitment. You've got to be, you know, there's a degree of settling within yourself that you have to have in order to, to do these. So, so at the beginning of the play, she has no self-discipline and that's because she's been disowned. So being disowned from her family, even though she ran away, she thought they'd still kind of accept her, but they didn't. Um, and so those things are to the fore. Um, it's not until those issues of family and belonging and identity start to become answerable that she can then settle down and, and find the skills to become the archaeologist she wants to be. And also settle down with Sam as well. Mm. She struggles to make a commitment to her partner. And I wanted to talk about that and ask you whether or not that was you know a knock-on effect I suppose of, of her upbringing. When the play opens Sophie has been invited conditionally back into the family fold because there's a wedding and she's in the bridal party to save face and she welcomes that opportunity because it's like oh my family this might be the beginning of getting my family back. And it's her sister who's getting married. Laura. That's right her, her younger sister so there's shame to do with the fact that her younger sister's getting married not her and she's so fixated on gaining access back to her family, being accepted, uh, overcoming her sense of guilt that she carries um, and, you know, alleviating the sense of shame that the family has because of, you know, the act of running away unmarried. That any, there's sort of like no, nothing left to give Sam (laughs) her partner Um, and, you know, which, you know, obviously causes, you know, is a cause of conflict in the play. But um, but it's also a maturity thing too and it's kind of like, well, you know, um, she hasn't really stepped back and thought about well what is family and she actually has one she's you know she's living with Sam they've been together for three years it's you know it looks like potentially being a really nurturing positive amazing relationship but she doesn't see that she's got a, a fixed ver- idea of what family is well let's talk about her biological family Lauren specifically her younger sister what are the most important things we should know about Lauren Lauren is is about 22 23 in the play and she's the one getting married she's marrying to escape her mother so we've got two sisters one escaped her mother by running away and shaming the family the younger sister is going to escape her, her mother by marrying young so she'll she'll be able to leave the family home with honor and respect both sisters are wanting the same thing but they're using different strategies to get it so Lauren's marrying very young um, and when Sophie runs away from home she's the one left with the mother Mara so she's in the firing line so so she cops all of Mara's bitterness and resentment and anger and you know, hatred for the world and and all of that. So she, um, so she survives by making herself a small target in the sense that she, she just goes along with the mother's cultural prescriptions. She goes along with the mother's definitions of what a woman should be, what a potential wife should be, what you know, what a you know, you can't marry, you can't leave home unmarried. So she just kind of keeps the peace by accepting the cultural conditions within her family. She ticks all the boxes, actually, doesn't she? She does tick all the boxes and she's, you know, she's got a good job and she's got a career path, but whether or not that makes her happy is a a whole different question. Well, I wanted to talk about Lauren's sense of family, actually, because she does tick all the boxes, as we've been saying, that a second-generation Australian is expected to by traditional parents, but she has little to no understanding of her heritage, just like Sophie. She toes a line, but she doesn't ask why. She just enjoys the superficial pleasures of affluence, which her job and relationship afford her. But she does evolve beyond that superficiality in the play, and it's without the burden of resentment or self-pity, which I think, for me, redeemed her personally when I was reading it. And we know that at her core, she's honest. 
and she's true, which makes me curious to know what does family mean to her and how does that affect the way that she sees her own life? Mm. I think by the end of the play, she completely redefines what family is. At the beginning of the play, it, you know, family is what you're born into and it's what you put up with. Um, and, you know, it's, it's the people you obey and, you know, it's the people that look like you. And also, too, she's she's sort of taken on a lot of Mara's characteristics to do with, you know, judgment and you know, judgmentalism and um, resentment and things like that. Um, but by the end of the play, I think um, she's very much open to redefining family and seeing people before pretexts and seeing... Um, human need before judgment and you know probably an idea that you know family's what works <laughs> you know family's not always what you're born into and you know like love like peace family is something you build it's something you make it's something you commit to well seeing as we're on the topic of family and we've talked about the two sisters let's talk about mara their mother what are the most important things that we should know about mara um, Mara is in her late 50s, early 60s when the play begins and she didn't migrate to Australia until she was in her 30s. So these children, are, uh, were, her two daughters were born here. Um, uh, a major thing about Mara's character is an absolute sense of grief for what she left behind in Amman in Jordan. Was a teacher at a you know very well-off school, um, had a place in society, lived in her father's house, which she inherited with her sister, Azza. Um, and so life over there was safe, secure, privileged, very middle class or upper middle class. Um, and there's a line in the play where she says, you know, the, the, the soil in this citadel, which is a part of Amman, um, has Stone Age blood, sweat and tears in it. So this sense that that, that life for her over in Jordan was, was about connection and belonging and belonging to community, but also belonging to history, like belonging to people long, long past. So when she comes to Australia and is uprooted and, and placed here, she never, ever gets over what she has lost and she never forgives the people who brought that loss into being. Mara didn't teach her daughters Arabic or very much about their heritage at all, actually. So for me, it's no surprise that they often find it a bit confusing and out of step with their Australian identity. It's like SBS in there, Lauren says to Sophie while Auntie Azza and Mara chatter away inside the house. No English. Can't understand a word. And Sophie suffers from the same problem. She also sees that she's outside this space in which her heritage is being lived in the here and now. Tell me why Mara or their father, Sahir, didn't teach Lauren and Sophie Arabic or very much about their heritage. When Sahir comes to Australia as a refugee and he lives here for two years before Mara finally joins him, um, the way he deals with the tragedy that he's leaving behind is to come to a new land and speak a new language and not go back. He never goes back to the Middle East and he never speaks Arabic again. Um, so what happens when Mara joins him and they start a family? He he just doesn't speak to her in Arabic, which drives her absolutely crazy because she arrives with no English, so it's a language she has to learn. So that, that shared connection that they had, he severs the minute she arrives. So language is not spoken between Mara and Sahir and he also never talks about um, circumstances in Palestine um, at all. He's very forward-looking as a character, so he only speaks about the here and the now and what he's up to and any memories he have he has of the Middle East, are generic ones to do with geography, but nothing to do with, with people or politics or 
or trauma or anything like that. He obviously felt like he had no choice but to leave. Tell me what are the most important things that we should know about Sahir? Peace is, is the word that he carries in his heart and it's the thing that he wants most. And one of the reasons he... Um, when he comes to Australia, he commits to being here because he thinks this is where he can build peace for his family and he thinks this is where he can find freedom and safety. And I wonder whether or not that's bound up with the fact that Sahir has actually invested so much into creating this new life. He spent so long building it and has gone to great lengths. He invested not only all of himself in their future, he bought the highest block of land in what was at the time a new settlement in Western Sydney. He waited on the doorstep of the display home all night to make sure that he was the first person that the sales lady saw, the first one that made an offer. And when she arrived that morning, he gave her a check for all the money he had. But while he found peace and contentment through that kind of conviction and commitment to creating this new life, Mara found the complete opposite. Tell me why things became so strained between them when she moved to Australia. Yeah, it's well for Sahir buying a block of land in a, a you know a yet to be named suburb at the back of Campbelltown, um, for him was um, absolutely a commitment to the future. You use the word cultivate, which is important because part of the way he lands in this land is he um, cultivates. He, he takes cuttings when he goes for walks off people's gardens, and he grows native plants and he plants a garden in his, his home, which is only native. So the, the commitment to being here and to you know trying as hard as he can to generate you know a, a life for the people he loves, he loves. Um, it's a gift that he's sort of pulling pulling together. Um, but for Mara, who had, you know, a middle-class, upper-middle-class life in Amman, uh, a good, you know, position in society as a well-respected teacher, what happens when she gets here is that she finds that he's got, she calls it a, a block of wind and cow shit. Um, so she's taken out to this block of land and then he goes to work every day. So she's a dumped mother if you like. So she's very quickly pregnant and she's living in this house. She's got no connection to the community. She can't speak the language of her neighbours. She can't teach. She's lost all her status. She's lost all her ability to earn her income. So for her, this is being trapped. But for him, it represents freedom. I want to talk to you about Sahir's death or more specifically, the absence of details surrounding his death, because I assume that he passed away many years ago, but I could be wrong. And I've noticed that the reason behind his death is not mentioned in the play either. It could be many things. And I guess the important thing for the story is that he's gone. He's just gone, leaving a car that Lauren secretly smokes in, a space in Sophie's imagination where she can talk to him, but a huge void in their family life. Do you believe that that kind of calculated omission allows readers and viewers to become a little bit more involved in the story by letting them kind of add their own pieces to the jigsaw? I do. I do. I mean, I, I mean, I, the reason I, you know, love writing for theatre and radio is because you absolutely are collaborating with the audience's imagination, withholding information sometimes makes the play a lot more alive in the mind of, of the, the listener or the, the audience. And, and when we were developing this play through the rehearsal process, one of the questions we asked ourselves was, what's a gap in our knowledge that we do need to fill that the audience doesn't need to know about? And what is a strategic omission? 
I mean, we in rehearsal, we have an idea of what we think <laughs> when he died and how, um, but that's certainly not in the play. Um, and I, But I don't think it was, um, I mean, I left that out because I don't think it's a hook. It certainly makes him a lot more fluid in some senses because he's not anchored by plot points you're not witnessing mm. or able to witness on stage. And I wonder if you could talk to me about the relationship between Sophie and Zaheer that she has in her imagination. Yeah, because... So here, when he appears in the play, mostly appears in her imagination as a memory. Um, there are a couple of flashback scenes that actually did happen, but most of the scenes we see him in are imagined by Sophie and are based on memories. So based on um, the, the backstory is that they used to walk a lot in the evenings to escape Mara, really. <laughs> um, and so the relationship she has with her father, he is dead in the play, but it's it's a relationship where she can take solace. Before we get to the real Azza, let's talk about avenging Azza. How did Sophie go from writing to her aunt and asking if there was a possibility that she could move to Jordan and be put in contact with people who work with antiquities to imagining her as this hyperbolic, utterly hilarious, take-no-prisoners hag? Mm. Well, Sophie met her aunt when she was 10, when Mara took Sophie and Lauren to Jordan for a visit. And her memory of her aunt when she was 10 was pleasant, nice. She remembers being taken to her school and taking on drives and, and for drives and things like that. However, that memory is 15 years old. And one of the ways Mara props up her own sense of self and dignity is to run other people down. Um, and the way she, one of the ways she keeps Sophie in line is by using kind of harsh precepts of her culture to kind of say, you know, if in Jordan, you know, if you did this, we'd be able to, you know, rip your ears off and drop you down a well or, you know, things of that nature. So, in the 15 years between having seen Azza and now when the play opens, that gap once again, another gap, gets filled with and coloured by other people's perceptions. There's a delightful absurdist twinge to her, though. Mm. It's deliberately so because it's it's she's an anxious projection coming from Sophie's imagination. That's what she is in the play. She's in no way real. And she's fun because of that. You know, So she's, she's the creation of things that Mara and Lauren have said that distort her cultural heritage but she's also a creation of you know moral panics that we have in light of September 11 or or the whole western tradition of orientalizing the middle east so we've got a magic carpet of course we've got a magic carpet because <laughs> because she's an absurd anxious projection so we've kind of pulled out a whole lot of you know obvious stereotypes and um, we play and muck around with the stereotypes and it's quite deliberate. The real Azza we know works at a very posh private school in Amman and unlike Mara she stayed in her ancestral home but beyond that we don't get told much. We see her character on display as she tries to wade through the complexity of Lauren, Sophie and Mara's very dysfunctional relationships. So tell me, in the here and now, from me to you, in a space that's free from language barriers, the tyranny of distance and complicated histories, what are the most important things that we should know about the real Azza? One way to look at the play is that, you know, there's a whole lot of rubble that, that their circumstances have created. And I see Azza as being like a shoot coming up from the rubble, so like a plant trying to kind of like grow through all of that and, and reach the sun and grow strong. She's a modern woman. She's very cosmopolitan. She's, you know, the modern Arabic consciousness. She's the Middle East that is, you know, struggling against tyranny and against traditions that are harmful and, and you know, lock people back in bad practices and 
all of that. So she's the antithesis, literal antithesis of avenging as a... Well, we quickly come to realise that she wants to find communion with her relatives. Obviously, there's a lot of misunderstanding, many, many barriers, but food breaks them down, or it starts to, at least. And I love the moment when Azza recounts her trip to MacArthur Square shopping centre in Campbelltown, tracking down ingredients for the, quote, all-Australian feast that she prepares for the family. Azza creates an amazing fusion of tastes and cultures, beef and Shiraz pies, cumin lamb cutlets with grilled peach chutney, pavlova with pomegranates and mint. Tell me about Azza's hopes and intentions when creating this feast. Well, um, there's a number of things happening because just, I mean, Lauren's about to get married and everybody's miserable. And so just on a purely human level, um, you know, and I believe this too, feed people, (laughs) (laughs) feed people, bring some conviviality and festivity into a situation where, you know, all these people are just miserable. So she wants to kind of overturn that for a start. And so the way she does it is through food, but it's very particular the food that she's serving because by her serving Australian food now whatever that is (laughs) is kind of still open for for discussion that's a kind of way of saying you know like if you live in a land a new land you adapt you have to take on new ingredients you have to take on new information you have to you know adapt to you know different climate different people different situations and so she's reminding her sister Mara the bitter one who still wants to live back in Amman she's saying you live here and look what can happen here look at how creative here can be look how how sumptuous here can be um so wake up wake up to to where you are and live here with your your daughters tell me what are some of the distinctly australian themes or issues that you knew you wanted to explore from the outside I was drawn to this story because I, there were themes that, that I care deeply about that I could explore in terms of the Australian narrative. What is that? Social inclusion is one of them. And um, Lee Lewis, um, she's spoken previously about, you know, that, is, that social inclusion is the great Australian project. And it really is. Like, it really, really is, particularly, you know, along the East Coast, but you've got the top end as well. Um, we have to work that out. It's not going to happen, uh, you know, just by putting a whole lot of refugees from Sierra Leone out in Liverpool or, you know, like... You've actually got to work out what social inclusion is and it has to be negotiated. And we have to negotiate our differences because if we don't negotiate our differences, then then our neighbour will always be other. You know, the, the Indian person living on that side of the fence will always be strange to us and therefore subject to judgment in that gap between knowing them and what I think about them. There's so much room for, for stereotype, for judgment, for fear. And and if people start to act on fear and stereotype, then, you, you know, you can get a lot of problems. But also self-determination is really important because, you know, what happens when, you know, you come here from another country? How do you start your life again? How do you settle? What does, what does you know, settling in a new life? land mean is it's not just a physical act it's it has to happen in your heart and soul and within your family as well and is that even possible in the first generation how many generations does that take how many generations does it take to um, resolve trauma that people arrive with and I'm also interested in um, I'm a second generation Australia Australian and um, and I didn't have access, real access to my father's culture. What does that do to to a second generation person bringing up that ambivalent relationship you have to the parent culture? Do you need to to sort that out? What happens if you don't sort that out? Does it bite you on the bum later in life? They're questions that I have. Looking back over the lifespan of this play thus far, 
heading into its premiere production and with the understanding that it will obviously evolve further and, and grow wider. Tell me how you see it fitting into the broader landscape of Australian theatre. No pressure. <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's a big thing to contemplate. We open in a week, you know, like I'm still really, really close to it and I haven't had much time to step back and, and you know, really contextualise it. But I'm quite passionate as a playwright about um, diversity of representation on our stages and screens and radios. So this play offers uh, an insight into a Jordanian, Jordanian Palestinian Australian family. Which you don't see very often. Which you don't see very often as well. The main character is that the protagonist is, is a lesbian, which you also don't see very often on stage, certainly not in a favourable light. And uh, there's also in this play, there are six characters, five of them are women. <laughs> and two of them of women are a certain age, you know, like two of the women, are, female characters are meant to be um, over 60. So my background is um, I've worked a lot in community theatre and um, with Powerhouse Youth Theatre, worked a lot in Western Sydney where cultural diversity is normal. No one cares. It's really important and it's negotiated day by day. But in terms of, you know, when you make a play and represent cultural diversity, it's just what you do. This is normal. But I, what I see on, on TV and generically across, you know, main stages is um, a lack of representation of, uh, of our wider um, cultural realities and where I can redress that, um, I will. Strange that we're still stuck in this kind of archetypal narrative of, you know, white Australia, which mm. is not what I see when I walk through the streets of Sydney every day. So mm. it is refreshing to see something like Jump for Jordan being put on a main stage. Thank you. Thank you very Thank much for sitting down and talking with me today. Thank you, my pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Not In Print. We hope you enjoyed hearing more about this great Australian play. You can find out more about who we are and view our full catalogue at currencypress.com.au. And if you have any comments or questions about this episode or any other episode, we'd love to hear from you. Just search for Currency Press on Facebook or Twitter and drop us a line. This episode was produced by Currency Press with the generous assistance of the Department of Performance Studies and the School of Letters, Art and Media at the University of Sydney.